Welcome to Spiritual Gold, the teaching ministry of Dr. Richard L. Strauss. I'm Dr. Mark Strauss, and these podcasts represent the faithful exposition of God's Word by my father through his 21-year ministry at Emmanuel Faith Community Church. Our prayer is that through these messages, you would be encouraged and equipped in your walk with the Lord. Would you like to learn to pray? I surely would. There's one thing I want to do in my Christian life. It's to learn how to pray, just as the disciples wanted to know. Lord, teach us to pray. One of the great ways of learning how to pray is to read and study the prayers in the Bible. There are a number of them. And the prayers of the Apostle Paul are especially noteworthy for their instruction and their example to us. Paul was a man of prayer. Prayer permeated his whole life and ministry. His epistles were written in a spirit of prayer. And they contain prayers that become an example to us, as well as teach us what God wants to do in our own lives. His prison prayers are particularly interesting and noteworthy. There are two of them in the book of Ephesians, one in chapter 1, which we're going to study tonight, verses 15 to 23. There's one in chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. There's one in the first chapter of his letter to the Philippians. And there's one in, his, in the first chapter of his letter to the Colossians. And there's something very interesting about these prayers of the Apostle Paul. The emphasis of the prayers seems to be on spiritual perception. Paul is not so much praying that God will give to these converts things they don't have. He is praying that these converts will come to understand things they already have. Now, he does pray to some degree that God will give them things that they aren't experiencing, like strength in their inner man. But they're things that have to do with Christian character. They aren't material things. It's not wrong to pray about material things, but that necessarily that shouldn't be necessarily the, the most important aspect of our prayer lives. I think we can learn from these prayers to put emphasis on the right things, and that is on spiritual perception, particularly that God will help us understand what we already have in Christ Jesus. Now, we've learned a little bit about what we have in this first chapter of Ephesians. But some Christians aren't aware of it. I read a story in Warren Wiersbe's little commentary on Ephesians called Be Rich about William Randolph Hearst, the late uh, newspaper publisher. He was a very wealthy man, as we all know. And one of his hobbies was collecting great works of art. And when he saw something of great value, he often coveted it and sought to obtain it for himself. And one day he was reading a description of this beautiful piece of art. And he decided, I want that in my collection. So he called his agent in, said, describe it for him, gave him the sheet of paper and said, I want you to find this and I want you to buy it for me. So he went all over the world, went abroad, spent months tracking down this, this piece of art. Finally, he located it sent a wire back to Mr. Hurst, said, the piece of art you'd like to buy is stored in one of your warehouses. You already own it. Now, if that man had had some understanding of what he owned, he wouldn't have gone on a wild goose chase and spent all that money trying to find it. I think that's what happened to some, has happened to some Christians. They're looking for something. They're not sure what it is, 
But in reality, they already possess it in Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul is going to be praying about in this prayer we're studying tonight. That these Ephesians would understand what they have in Christ. It's a prayer for wisdom, a prayer for revelation, and a prayer for enlightenment. I want you to look, first of all, at the praise in this prayer in verses 15 and 16. Then at the petition in the prayer in verses 17 through the first half of verse 19. And then the power of the prayer that consumes the rest of the chapter. The praise, the petition, and the power. We read in verse 15, Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. Paul couldn't stop thanking God for the Ephesians. Now there must have been something good about them that he saw that caused this kind of praise and thanksgiving. Every time he prayed, he thanked God for them. I just can't stop thanking God for you. What a fantastic testimony. What was it that caused Paul? Well, let's go through it. He says, wherefore. Those words literally mean on account of this. When you read on account of this, you want to know on account of what. And you have to go back to find out on account of what. And you come to the conclusion it's because they were God's children. They were his chosen ones, chosen in Christ, verse 4, adopted in him, verse 5, accepted in him, verse 6, redeemed in him, verse 7, made heirs in him, verse 11, sealed in him, verse 13 and 14. They were God's children. On account of this, I give thanks to you, but that's not all. On account of this, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints... The thing Paul was really thankful for was not only that they were children of God, but that they were expressing it in their everyday lives. Their faith in Jesus Christ was known to all. People could see it by the way they acted. That faith in the Lord Jesus, that was the vertical dimension of the Christian life. But that wasn't the end of it. Their faith in the Lord Jesus is also expressed in a horizontal dimension to their Christian lives. By love unto all the saints. When these Ephesians came to know Jesus Christ, their lives were changed. They were transformed. There was a new love. They began to care about other people. They weren't just looking out for their own interests anymore, but the interests of others. Because love is that which desires the best for the one loved. And that's the way they were living, and that's the way they were acting toward one another. There was a new kindness in their attitudes toward one another. A new patience. A new considerateness toward one another. Because the love of the Lord Jesus had gripped their lives. There was a new concern for one another in their problems and needs and burdens and hurts. There was a willingness to minister to one another even when it took sacrifice on their own part. Because the love of the Lord Jesus filled their lives. That's why Paul was thanking God for them. That was something to thank God for. I wonder if the Apostle Paul had known us whether he would have said this very same thing. I just can't stop thanking God for you because I hear about your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for all the saints. I don't mean just words. Their love wasn't just words. It wasn't going around saying, oh, I love you, brother. I love you, sister. No, no. It was demonstrated in actions toward one another. Time spent bearing one another's burdens. It was for real. If there's one thing the church of Jesus Christ needs in our day above all others... I think it is the expression of this Christ-like love. I think we need it to a greater degree right here at Emmanuel Faith Community Church. We need a caring spirit 
toward one another. And people will be able to say, every time I think about you, I just can't stopping, stop praising God for you. That's the praise, verses 15 and 16. Will you look secondly at the petition in verses 17 to 19? Here's what he's praying for. Making mention of you in my prayers that, here's the content of the prayer, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened and that you may know. Now that's all preliminary to three things Paul wants them to know. We'll talk about those three things in a minute, but I've got to deal with the preliminary uh, things here in order to understand the three items Paul wants us to know. He says, I'm asking God, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, don't let that throw you. God is often used synonymously with the Father. That doesn't mean Jesus isn't also God. The scripture teaches, and Paul teaches, that Jesus is God in flesh. And he's talking about the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Father of glory, the Father who possesses in himself all glory and to whom all glory is due. I'm asking God the Father that he will give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Now, I don't think Paul is praying that God would give them the Holy Spirit. They were true believers. They had the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God, dwells in the heart and life of every true believer. So Paul is praying they will have an attitude. An attitude of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. Now the only way we can get that attitude is through the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So the Holy Spirit is here. But the word Spirit is properly in a small letter in the King James Version. I didn't check it out in other translations some Bible commentators believe this is the Holy Spirit. I don't happen to believe it is. There is no definite article before it, by the way, in the original text. We'll give unto you a spirit of wisdom and revelation. What are they? The word wisdom is the Greek word sophia. Uh, it's part of the word philosophy, which is the love of wisdom. Sophia means insight into the true nature of things, the way they are. Insight into the true nature of things. That's wisdom. God wants us to know the way things really are. People of the world don't know that. They don't understand the way things are. They can't even begin to comprehend why things are the way they are and the way they are. Because they don't know God. And He made them the way they are. He allowed them to be as they are. And only by understanding Him can we really understand wisdom. He is Wisdom. Paul prays that we might have a spirit of wisdom and revelation. That's the Greek word apocalypsis, from which uh, we get the word apocalypse, which is the name applied to the last book of our Bible, the book of the Revelation. That's the same word, by the way. That is the book of the apocalypsis. This is the revelation, a spirit of revelation. That's an uncovering, an unveiling we learn. What's that mean, to have a spirit of unveiling? Well, it's talking about unveiling of the mind of God. It's talking about a receptivity to God's mind as He expresses it. The expression of the very will and truth of God. He wants us to have a spirit of receptivity to the mind of God. A spirit of wisdom that is insight into the way things are. And a spirit of receptivity. That is an openness 
to the very mind of God. And where are those things found? He tells us in the knowledge of him. The way we get wisdom and revelation is by knowing God. And of course, he has revealed himself in his word. So we get to know the word. We get to know the Lord. And then the Lord ministers to us a spirit of insight into the way things really are and a receptivity to the expression of God's mind. It all comes in our knowledge of him. But that's not all. He says, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. The word understanding is literally the Greek word heart. He says, the eyes of your heart. You didn't know your heart had eyes, did you? But it does. Because the scripture uses the word heart more than just an organ that pumps blood in the chest. It's really used of the inner being of the mind and the emotions and the will. The whole inner person. And the Apostle Paul is praying that our inner person may have enlightened eyes so that we can really understand some things and as a result of that, know something. The eyes of your heart being enlightened. That word enlightened, by the way, is the Greek word from which we get our word photography. It has to do with light. God wants to bring light to our inner being that we can know something. Know something. There are two Greek words for know. One means to know by experience. The other means to know by reflection. Uh, on, on the facts, by interacting with the facts. This is the word that means to know by reflection, by interacting with true information and facts. Sitting down, thinking it through, coming to the convinced persuasion that this is true. God wants us to know this. Three things that he wants us to know. Now, of course, we're talking about the ministry of God's Spirit in our lives. All of this is done by the Spirit of God. He's the one who gives us the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of God so that the eyes of our hearts can be enlightened so that we can know. Are you ready? Three things God wants us to know. First of all, he wants us to know what is the hope of his calling. What is the hope of his calling? Now, what does that mean? What is the hope of our calling? There may be some other verses of Scripture that would help us understand what is the hope of his calling. Hold your place in Ephesians and turn over to Titus 2.13. Titus 2.13. Here's our hope. Looking for that blessed hope, the glorious appearing of the great God, even our Savior, Jesus Christ. What is the hope of the believer? It is the appearing of Jesus Christ. It's the coming of the Lord Jesus to receive us unto himself. That's why he chose us, so that we could be before him. Go back to Ephesians 1, verse 4. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. What is the hope of our calling? What is that ultimate goal out there toward which we look and toward which we are moving with great expectation and anticipation. It is the coming of the Lord Jesus to gather us together to himself, at which moment we shall be changed into his likeness. Our sin nature shall be removed and we shall be holy and without blame before him in perfect love. That's the hope of our calling. It's the gladness of his presence. The great gladness in his presence and the perfection of person that we shall experience when the Lord Jesus comes back for us. We're not very much like him right now. We're sh we should be growing in his likeness. They taught us a little chorus 
tonight, which I hope we'll sing again. Little by little, every day, little by little, in every way, Jesus is changing me. He's changing me. I'm not the same person I used to be. Sometimes it's slow growing. Boy, that could be said again, couldn't it? Sometimes it's slow growing, but there's a knowing that someday perfect I shall be. That's it, you see. That's the hope of our calling. Someday perfect I shall be. I shall see him, 1 John 3, 2, and I shall be like him, for I shall see him as he is. We're going to be like the Lord Jesus. That's the hope of our calling. Paul wants us to know that. He wants us to make it a part He wants us to make it a part of our being, to weave it into the very fiber of our being so that we think about it, to know it so thoroughly that it's a part of our lives so that we live every day with that ready knowledge that someday Jesus is going to come for us and take us to be with himself and change us into his very image. And if we live with that knowledge, it's going to make a difference in the way we live because we're going to be anticipating his coming. Realizing it could be tonight. So the things we think about, the things we say with our mouths, the things we do, the places we go, they're going to be things that honor Him because we'll be living with the knowledge of the hope of our calling, which is the gladness of His presence. You see why Paul prayed for that? That is the most important motivating factor in the Christian's life. That's why he prayed for it. He wants the eyes of our hearts to be enlightened so that we may know the hope of our calling. But that's not all. Secondly, and what the riches are of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Now, we often think about our inheritance. We talked about that. In fact, we talked about it last week because it was in that passage that we studied in verse 11. We have obtained an inheritance being predestinated according to the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his own will. We have an inheritance, but that's not what Paul is praying about here. He's praying that we may know that we are God's inheritance. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? Now that is an incredible truth to me. To think, I am God's inheritance. When I think about that, friends, I say to myself, poor God. I mean, does God know what he's got? This is absolutely unbelievable that he looks on you and me as his inheritance. Maybe you feel the same way. I mean, does he know how I botched it this week? Does he know how I haven't gotten victory over those sins that that seem to hang on to my life this week? Does he know how I... Fail to take advantage of some opportunities to share him this week? Does he know all that? Yet he wants me as his inheritance. That's what he says. He says, I'm part of the riches of his inheritance. His blessing, his inheritance. Reminds me of the Lord's parable in Matthew 13 about the pearl of great price. Remember that? How a merchant man was looking for a pearl and he found this beautiful pearl of great value and it was so valuable he went and sold all that he had and went and purchased it. I believe that pearl represents the church of Jesus Christ, you and me. Sinners, like you and me. But He saw in us trophies of grace. He saw us as we could be by His grace and through His power. So He redeemed us. He gave Himself all that He had, His life, 
He paid for our sins so that he might buy us from the slave market of sin and make us part of his glorious inheritance. What a tremendous thing. We hear so much about self-esteem and self-worth in this day and age. The scripture teaches that we and ourselves are of no worth, but this is what gives us worth, friend. We are of value to God because he saw in us what he could make of us. And that's where our worth lies. We don't have to go scrounging around to try to establish our self-worth. We don't have to scratch and claw to establish our self-worth and lash out at other people and put other people down and fight and argue and war and to, to make ourselves important to somebody and establish our importance. No, no. God views us as important. We are valuable treasures to Him. You are. I don't care what you've done this week. Well, I do care what you've done this week. But uh, whatever you've done this week, you're a valuable treasure to God if you're His child, if you've trusted the shed blood of Jesus Christ for your eternal salvation. You're part of God's inheritance. Now it ought to send you home feeling a little better than maybe you came tonight. The fact that God views you that highly and cares that much about you that He was willing to make you part of His glorious inheritance. The riches of His inheritance in the saints. The gladness of His presence. The glory of His possession. Paul wants us to know that. He wants us to live with a daily recognition that we're part of God's glorious inheritance. You know, that would make a difference in the way we live too if we really kept that in our brain cells through the day, wouldn't it? I'm part of God's treasure. Wow, you know, I need to get victory over this sin. I I need to start living for the Lord Jesus. I need to start putting Him higher on my priority list and sharing Him with others. If I'm part of His treasure, then I want to live like part of His treasure. The glory of His possession. Paul prays that we might know it. Really know it. Third, not only what is the hope of his calling, what is the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, but also what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe. The greatness of his power. Paul wants us to know that. He wants us to know how much power we have in Jesus Christ. We're living in an age of power, unprecedented power in all human history. You watch one of those huge missiles blast off and realize the, the millions of, of tons of power that, or pounds of power that are being produced in that thrust. Carrying warheads that have enough power in them to devastate the face of the earth. That is power. But I'll tell you, we're, we have living within us one more powerful than all that. God is all-powerful. And He is the source of all power. And that power is at our disposal. See it? What is the exceeding greatness of His power? To us that believe. Toward us. That power can be demonstrated in our lives. The power of Almighty God dwells within us. There really is no excuse for our defeat. Our spiritual defeats. Our bondage to besetting sins, the fact that we don't grow in the Lord Jesus and His knowledge and grace, that we're not sharing Him with others and not seeing Him use us in His service, there isn't any reason for that because we have within us power. Where is the power that God says dwells in us in this day and age? We don't see very many demonstrations of it in the church of Jesus Christ today. We look around us and we see families falling apart. 
We see churches disintegrating. We see Christians who seem to be hopelessly entangled in sin. Where is the power? Why don't we experience it? The only reason I know is because we haven't laid hold of it. We would rather do our own thing and go our own way than claim the power of God, depend upon that power to enjoy victory and blessing in our Christian lives. God's greatness has not diminished one single bit. The only reason we are so powerless is because we have not let His power operate in us. That power is described in the next few verses. Let's look at it. According to the working of His mighty power, which He wrought in Christ. Incidentally, there's so many words for power here, it almost blows the mind. What is the exceeding greatness of His power? That's dunamis. We all know about that Greek word. According or toward those of us who believe, according to the working, that's the Greek word that from which we get our English word energy, the energizing of this mighty power. There are two different words, mighty and power. That's not, that second one is not dunamis, that's another one, another word for power. We've got all this power, every kind of power you can think of is, is available to us. And here it is. It's the power which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead. It's resurrection power. The world thinks it's got power. The scientific laboratories of our day have brought power into being. There's no question about it. Those missiles and those nuclear warheads have power. But I'll tell you, every scientist with all his wisdom and all his fancy equipment and all the knowledge of the ages has not been able to conquer death. They haven't been able to do what God did when he raised Jesus from the dead. When that stone was rolled back and Jesus Christ arose from that grave, triumphant over sin and Satan and death, that was more power demonstrated than the world has ever known. It was the power of resurrection. And you and I have got that power living in us in the person of the Holy Spirit. What reason do we have for defeat, spiritually speaking, with resurrection power? That isn't the end of it which he wrought in Christ, verse 20, when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in heavenly places. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. It's the power of resurrection and it's the power of exaltation. He not only raised him from the dead, but he exalted him to his own right hand, over, far and above every other being. And he lists spiritual beings, principalities and powers and mights and dominions are usually titles applied to angelic, supernatural hosts. Jesus Christ is far above all Satan's hosts and all human rulers in this age and every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. That's power. He raised him from the dead and he exalted him to his own right hand. And it's the power, verse 22, that hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. It was the power of subjection, the power of resurrection, the power of exaltation, and the power of sub subjection. He put all things under his feet and he made him to be head over the church, which is his body. The fullness of him that filleth all in all. See, that's how we get the power. Because we're the body and he's the head, he communicates to us his power. And now we can enjoy that resurrection power, that exaltation power, that subjection power. 
because we're part of his body. There really isn't any excuse, is there, for a lack of progress and a lack of growth and a lack of victory in our lives? Some years ago, I, I read the account of the martyrdom of the Alca, uh, by the Alca Indians of those five missionaries in Ecuador. Jim Elliott was a, a man who had an, an unusual walk with God. If you've read anything about him, you know the kind of a man he was. Just a man of spiritual depth and vision that hardly found a peer among his contemporaries. After his death and some of his letters began to come out, this particular paragraph, excerpt from one of his letters, was published. When are we going to rise like men and face the world squarely? This driveling nonsense which condones inactivity because of the apostasy of the day needs a little fire to show up the downright ungodliness it hides. We cuddle around the Lord's table as though it were the last coal of God's altar and warm our hands thinking that we'll appease the wrath of the indignant Christ when he charges us with the unmet, unchallenged, untaught generation of heathen. It makes me boil when I think of the power we profess and the utter impotency of our action. Believers who know one-tenth as much as we do are doing 100 times more for God with his blessing and our criticism. Oh, if I could write it, preach it, say it, paint it, anything at all, if only God's power would become known among us. That's a man who had a vision like Paul's. He wanted to see God's power unleashed in the church of Jesus Christ in our day. And oh, that it might be unleashed in this local assembly of believers, this little segment of the body of Christ. Wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if Paul's prayer were answered in our lives? If we had that kind of faith in the Lord Jesus and love to all the saints that prompted this prayer so that Paul could give thanks for us without ceasing, that we might have a spirit of wisdom and a revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of our hearts being enlightened, that we might know the gladness of his presence and the glory of his possession and the greatness of his power so that he might use us with more and more effectiveness with each passing day and reveal to a world around us that his fullness dwells in us. You see, we are the fullness of him that filleth all in all. We can do the things he loves by his power. If we're willing to be Conscious of his presence in our lives, moment by moment, and consciously depending on his power. Let's pray. Father, we ask you that this prayer may be realized in our experience. Lord, I pray that we may live with a daily knowledge of these things. The expectancy of Christ's coming. The fact that we are his inheritance the almighty power we have residing in us in the person of your Holy Spirit. Lord, teach us, we pray, to lay hold of that power. For Jesus' sake, amen. Thanks for listening to this message by Dr. Richard L. Strauss. Copyright 2020, Spiritual Gold, Inc. All rights reserved. For more on this ministry and for additional resources, be sure to visit spiritualgold.org.